Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. It says that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And I just want to kind of park there for just a minute and note this. It is the Lord who determines what is good and what isn't, right? Our culture doesn't dictate that. The media doesn't dictate that. Certainly it's not the government that dictates that. It's the Lord and the word of the Lord that determines what is right and wrong. It's the word of God that determines what is just and unjust. It's the word that determines what is wicked and what is good. And remember, we've seen a few times in Judges already, this, 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 this verse come up, it says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And the people, they apparently thought that they were doing good. They thought that their actions were approved by God. They thought that their actions were okay. But it was still evil in the sight of the Lord. And if I can be so bold, let me say this. Your opinion doesn't matter. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to the word of God, your opinion doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what the scriptures say. That's what we base right or wrong on. Timothy Keller said this. <coughs> he said, we must remember that the heart of their sin and ours was idolatry. And then he says this, idols are not always bad things, but good things turned into ultimate hopes and goals. I like that. It says idols aren't necessarily, sometimes they're bad things, right? Sometimes it's worshiping your children in the arms of Molech and, and, <clears throat> and some of these things. But sometimes idols are things that aren't necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily sinful until we put them in a place of, of preeminence in our lives. And then they become wrong. I mean, you could take things like, like education, and relationships, finances, even ministry, right? Those are, they're not bad things, right? They're, they're good things. But we make them idols when they become the, the most important thing in our lives. When they take that, that place of, of, of primacy in our lives. Let me read verse one again. And the people of Israel did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines, for 40 years. You know, every time we look at a new judge, we see the same thing, don't we? And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Are you sick of hearing that yet? 
Are you sick of, of seeing these same cycles over and over again in the lives of the people of God? Right? We see them sin. We see judgment. We see repentance. We see them begin to walk with the Lord, fall back into sin, judgment, repentance. This cycle over and over and over again in the lives of God's people. And man, I, I look at that and it's just, it's, it's kind of depressing. It's kind of depressing seeing it in their lives. And it's kind of depressing because so often it's sort of, it's sort of a metaphor for our own lives, isn't it? So often we can be the same way. We have these cycles in our own lives. We sin and the Lord disciplines us and we walk with the Lord. And before long, what happens? We fall right back into sin again. It's like, Rinse and repeat over and over again. And the people here, they uh, once again, they fall into this, this period of, of national sin. And it says the Lord gives them over to the Philistines. And I want to stop here for just a second. It's, it's easy for us as we read through these passages you know, especially if you're, if you're reading through a big chunk at a time. And it's easy for us to feel like these events took place in a matter of weeks or maybe a matter of months or, or maybe a decade. But, but this book of Judges, it spans a period of several centuries. And the one thing that I want to point out here is that God through this whole process, continually, he's giving people time to repent. He's giving the nations time to repent. And the people refuse to repent. And they grow more and more corrupt. And guess what happens as the nation grows corrupt? Judgment comes. The hand of judgment falls on the people. And we see this with the Israelites, we see it in other nations in the Old Testament. We see it throughout history. Do we think that, that somehow we're different? Do we somehow think that, that our nation, that our country is somehow different and special? I mean, God judged Israel for her sin and, and Israel was the apple of God's eye. Israel was God's chosen people. God continuously judges other nations throughout history. Are we so arrogant or so naive to think that God's judgment is going to pass over our nation? I mean, look at where we are right now as a people. The only thing I can think of is it's God's mercy and his grace that stays his hand of judgment on our nation. As we open up the text this morning, we see that the Lord begins to use the Philistines to judge the people of God. And you may remember from previous chapters that the Philistines, they weren't native to this region. They weren't native to the Levant. They weren't Semitic people like the Jews and the Arabs. <clears throat> the Philistines, they were a, a seafaring people from the region of Greece. They are from up there and they migrated down through the Mediterranean and they landed here on the shores of, of, of Canaan, of, of, of Israel. And they began to spread out. 
but they continued to trade with, with that part of the world. And because of their, their connections with that region, they were, they were technologically advanced compared to the Israelites. They were advanced in areas of weaponry. They were advanced in areas of, of metallurgy. They were <coughs> advanced in, in, in society. In a lot of ways, they were, they were centuries ahead of the, of the Hebrew people. And so when they first began to come against the Jews, they were a, a very powerful enemy. They were an overwhelming force. And here we see they begin to rule over the Jewish people for, for 40 years. And it says in verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we see there's this fellow Manoah. He and his wife, they're unable to have kids. And remember in that day, right, kids were everything. In that culture, children were your, your legacy. And not only were they your legacy, but they were also your workforce, right? They helped around the farm. They helped with the flocks. They, they carried on the family line. And so Manoah and his wife here, they're unable to have kids. And this would have been difficult. It would have been something that was continually on their hearts and on their minds. And one day it says, the angel of the Lord shows up. And remember, when we see this term, the angel of the Lord, when we see that in the Old Testament, typically it's what's referred to as a theophany or a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And we're going to see as the text unfolds, this is exactly what happens. Jesus shows up here in Judges 13, and he has a little chat with Manoah's bride. And he says to her, Behold, you were barren and have not born children. She's like, uh, yeah, I'm aware of that. He says, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Jesus says, guess what? I know you've been trying to have kids and nothing is working. He says, but I've got good news for you. You're gonna conceive he says, you're going to bear a son. He says, break out the blue cigars, right? Things are going to happen. But here's the thing. From birth, he says, your son is going to be set apart. He's not going to have any wine or any strong drink. He's not supposed to eat any unclean food. And as you may know, this is a, a reference to what is known as the Nazarite vow. And this idea of the Nazarite vow, it appears in Numbers chapter six. 
And it comes from the Hebrew word nazir, which means to be consecrated or to be set apart. It's sort of the, the New Testament idea of being sanctified. And usually in the Old Testament, a man or a woman, they would take this, this Nazarite vow and it was for a, for a set period of time. And during that set period of time, they abstained from drinking alcohol. They abstained from, from unclean animals. They abstained from unclean food. They abstained from, from getting haircuts, all, all these different specifications. And, and as we talk about this, this, this Nazarite vow, sometimes people get a little confused here because we talk in scripture about Jesus the Nazarene, right? And being a Nazarite and being a Nazarene are different things, right? Jesus was a Nazarene in the same way that we are Washingtonians, right? Why are we Washingtonians? Because we are from Washington, you guys are on fire, right? Jesus was a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. He hailed from Nazareth. So Nazarene and Nazarite, they kind of sound the same, but they're unrelated things. They just happen to sound similar. And as it happens, there were Nazarites in the New Testament as well, right? Anybody remember any of the prominent Nazarites in the New Testament? John the Baptist. Like Samson, from birth, he was a Nazarite. Again, in Acts chapter 18, we see Paul going into the temple and shaving his head and taking this Nazarite vow, right? And it was an interesting, they would go in, they would make this vow, they'd make a pledge, they would shave off their hair and they would burn it on the altar. And then they would not cut their hair for the purity of the vow and they'd go back into the temple and they would shave their head again and burn it on the altar and then their, their vow is complete. <clears throat> so this here though, with Samson, it was unusual and that the Nazarite, as I said, it was usually a period of a month or six months or a year or whatever. But Samson was dedicated to be a Nazarite from birth. And something interesting that I missed, I think the first few times even that I've taught judges you know, we see that Samson is called to be a Nazarite from birth, right? No wine, no whiskey, no dead bodies, no cutting of the hair. But notice what it says in verse four. His mother was called to the same thing, wasn't she? She was called to live out this Nazarite vow in preparation for the birth of her son. I'm gonna circle back to that in a few minutes and explain why I think that's important. Verse six, then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you, <coughs> you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So she says, honey, this guy just showed up, this man of God. She says, his appearance was like the angel of God. And I have to wonder at this point, you know, what, 
what set apart the angel of God from just a, a, a normal looking dude, right? Did he, did he glow? Did he float? Was he transparent? I, I, I don't know. And something else I wonder. We see these Christophanies, these Theophanies a number of times in the Old Testament, right? Jesus, he appears to Abraham. He appears to Jacob. He appears to Hagar, to Joshua, to Moses, to Daniel, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Did he look the same each time? Did he, did he look like the Jesus of the New Testament? Would, would, would Peter and John have recognized him? These are the questions that keep me up at night. She says, the angel of the Lord appeared and his appearance was very awesome. The King James says, and his appearance was terrible. Now, in our, in our vernacular, awesome, it sort of means cool, right? Who Jesus is Awesome. Jesus is really cool, bro. But that isn't what the word awesome means. Awesome means full of awe, full of wonder. Awesome, it means fearful. It means, it means terrible. Not terrible in the bad sense, but terrible in the scary sense. Right? And the Hebrew word here for awesome, it means to make afraid. She told her husband, she says, look, he didn't tell me his name and I didn't ask. It was a little bit scary. He just told me we're going to have a son and he's going to be a Nazarite. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. I love this verse. Manoah, he hears that his wife has this experience and he cries out to God. He says, Lord, Lord, reveal yourself to me as well. Reveal yourself to me. Send the man of God back again to teach us what we're to do with this child who's about to be born. Manoah says, listen, God, you're gonna give us this kid. Show us how we should raise him. Show us what we're to do with him. And I think that this should be the heart of every single parent. Lord, you have given us this child. Teach us how to raise them. Lord, you've, you've made us parents. Show us, show us what to do. And do you see this here? He's praying that God would make them the parents that they need to be. Right, if there's ever a good place to apply Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, this is it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. If there was ever an area that we need to not lean on our own understanding and trust the Lord, 
It's in the arena of parenting, right? It's tough. And I can't say this for sure because this is the only time that I've ever been a parent, right? But it seems to me like there's never been a period of time in all of history that it's been more challenging to be a parent than it is today. Jeff and I were at the gym the other day watching our boys play basketball and we were just kind of chatting about this. You know, and, and let me be clear, what I'm about to say, this is my own opinion. Don't get, don't get mad at God, you can get mad at me. Um, but I think that up, up until maybe the 19th century, for the most part, parenting by and large, it didn't really change, right? From generation to generation, things pretty much stayed the same. There would be small changes in culture, but there weren't radical departures from one generation to the next. But in the 19th century, things, or the 1900s rather, not the 19th century, the 1900s, things really started to change. With the advent of radio and TV and technology, things have radically been changing. If you're, if you're my age or older, I mean, I remember growing up, I was always out in the woods doing stuff, screwing around. Even in high school, in junior high and high school, me and my buddies were out in the woods and we're building ramps for our bicycles. You know, we're out getting into fights, doing stupid kid stuff, sneaking into swimming pools that we're not supposed to go into. And my mom's looking at me. Um, jumping, off, jumping off of bridges, you know, playing chicken on bicycles, just general Michigas, getting into trouble, <clears throat> hanging out with buddies. And you know, it's interesting, we don't really see that very much anymore, do we? We don't really see very much kids out playing in the streets. You don't see kids out in the street building bicycle ramps, making homemade swords and having sword fights. And I think a lot of that has to do with technology. As I said, starting back, you know, radios and radio programs at night, people were staying in watching it, and then TV, and people started getting drawn into watching TV. And if you're my age, you remember at around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, what would happen? The TV would go off the air, and there was just that little picture. You know, it was just, you know, shh, that noise, and there's the little bars. I remember one channel had this picture of this little bear in a nightcap. And it said, we'll be back at 6 a.m. or whatever it was. <clears throat> but times have changed, haven't they? There's 24-hour cable. When I was a little kid, Atari 2600 came out and the one button in the joystick and Pac-Man. And, and that started sort of the advent of this, this gaming culture. And people weren't super hardcore gamers because... Pac-Man and River Raid, you can only stay interested for so long. But, you know, junior high, high school, Nintendo came out. And Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong and Contra. Contra was a great game. <clears throat> and then, then online gaming came. And access to the internet and smartphones. And there's so much entertainment out there now. There's so much stimulus for our kids, so much overstimulation that takes place. 
and on our smartphones. You open them up and there's Instagram and there's TikTok and there's Facebook. There used to be um, MySpace, right? And, and all these, I, I spent hours on MySpace creating this great thing and then all of a sudden they, they ended it. I was like, what a waste. <laughs> Ouch. <clears throat> but now you pull out your phones and you can just scroll for hours and hours and hours. You know, I think the bathroom has become the most popular room in the house now. I mean, that's reality, right? There's so much information available to our kids and not to mention the availability of of all the inappropriate stuff out there, pornography and, and predators that are on the internet. And on top of that, all the, the crazy stuff that's being force-fed to our kids through the internet, through, through media, through our schools, through our education systems. <coughs> Excuse me. You might remember last year, that video surfaced of that little corporate meeting at Disney. And one of the creative executives was thanking the other executives for allowing her to, in her words, to promote her her not-so-secret gay agenda, right? And she was openly talking about how they're, they're trying to normalize that lifestyle with kids. And um, my kids, I went down into our TV room the other day, and, and, and I don't know why, but we still have Disney+. Plus. You know, we keep talking about getting rid of it, but, and there, there's good stuff on there, and you know, the Avengers are on there, and Star Wars, and I'm, I'm kind of reticent to get rid of it. But they're watching this movie called Strange World, have you guys seen this? Strange World, and the opening few minutes, there's this boy and a carload of friends come up, and this other boy gets out, and they're very blatantly like, like flirting with each other. And, and then the dad comes out and he goes, Oh, I see why you like him. Right? And the dad's encouraging him to pursue this relationship with this other boy. This is a Disney cartoon aimed at your kids. This is what the world is feeding us now. And as it happens, oh, I, I paused it and I sat down with my kids and we kind of rewound it and watched it and it ended up being a, a teachable moment and I, I kind of explained what was going on here and, and they saw it. But all this stuff is going on and on top of that, we have this whole transgender insanity. And I'm just going to tell you, that's what it is. It is insanity. And then we have this critical race theory and BLM and all this stuff being taught in our schools. And this is a, this is a lot for parents to navigate today. And, and it seems like a lot of parents are starting to react but it seems like parents, sometimes they're starting to react in the wrong ways and react in the wrong areas. Parents are waking up that we need to protect our kids, but they're protecting them from the wrong things. And we've sort of formed this, you maybe have heard the term helicopter parenting, right? Not allowing our kids to take normal risks. You don't, don't climb that tree, Johnny. You might get hurt. Don't go on the merry-go-round. They've removed merry-go-rounds from schools. You notice that? 
I guess they were kind of dangerous. I flew off a few of them. But <clears throat> removing all the risks from kids' lives. You know, don't roughhouse. You might get hurt. Don't throw that snowball. You might hurt somebody. Somebody might get upset. You know, don't leave my sight. You're only 13. Boys in particular, men, we're designed by God to be warriors, to be protectors, to be explorers, to be adventurers. And that's how God designed us as men, as males. I was reading this article, and it was on a medical site, and it didn't talk about men. It didn't talk about males. It talked about persons with a penis. That's the world that we're living in now. I mean, I don't even have the words to express how ludicrous that is. This is the world that our kids are coming up in. And let me just add this before I close, as long as I'm on this rant. <coughs> God created us, male and female, and we're different from one another. And frankly, I'm glad. I'm glad. My, my favorite thing about my wife, as I've said, I said many times, is she's not a dude. I love that about her. <laughs> right? That's the best thing about women is they're not men. Our boys, sorry, she's red in the face now. <laughs> Your boys, my boys, they're not broken, defective girls. And that's how they're treated a lot of times in school, in the education system, right? Sit still, don't roughhouse, don't push, don't touch one another. It's not a competition, etc., etc., etc. And most boys don't function well in that kind of a setting. Most 10-year-old boys don't do a good job sitting still for four hours straight. Well, we'd better medicate them. They probably have ADD. You better get some Ritalin in them. Oh, boys, young men, they need to roughhouse. They need physical contact, right? I, I, not everybody agrees with me on this, but man, I think that conflict is good for boys. I don't always necessarily think it's a bad thing when little boys get in fights because it teaches conflict resolution, right? Because you're gonna have conflict when you're older. Life is full of conflict and you need to know how to deal with it. Boys need to find out who they are. And we need to be careful as parents not to rob our boys of their opportunities to grow and become men. All that to say, those of us who are parenting now or those of us who will be parenting in the future, it's a tough time to be parenting. And more than ever, we as parents need the wisdom and the direction of the Lord 
if we're gonna raise godly kids. Remember what the Lord says in James 1.5? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. Do you need God's wisdom in raising your kids? That's not really a question. The answer is yes. It was rhetorical. Guess what? It's available. We just need to ask him for it. Verse nine. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? <clears throat> I want to note this before we go further. Manoah cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, come teach me. Come reveal yourself to me. And what happens? The Lord shows up. It reminds me of Jeremiah 29, 13. In Jeremiah 29, 13, you're, you're probably familiar with this verse. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. <clears throat> Knock and the door will be open to you. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 29. But if from there you will seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. I want you to see this, that God wants us to seek after him. But when we do seek after him, he makes it easy for us to find him. I told you guys about this a while back. When I was in Bible college, we played hide and seek. And we would have these epic hide and seek games. It would last for hours. Our, our Bible college campus, it was kind of out in the woods. And we would go out during the daytime and we would kind of plot out hiding places. And it was like a few acres, our, our, our zone. And we would go and we would be dressed in all black. And I remember times I'd have branches tied around my head and we'd climb up trees and we'd be covering ourselves with tree limbs. And these games would last for hours. Right? We, we did not want to be, it was a competition, this hide and seek. Now, my little girls like to play hide and seek as well. And when Hannah wants to play hide and seek, I don't go around the block and hide under the neighbor's car. I hide behind the couch with my feet sticking out. Or I hide when I, you know, I'm, I make it easy for her to find me. And that's how it is when we seek the Lord, right? 
He wants to be found by us. He wants us to look for him, but he makes it easy for us to find him. So the Lord shows up again to Manoah's wife and she runs and gets Manoah and he says, he's back. And Manoah comes and he says, so you're the same guy that, that spoke to my wife earlier? And, and the angel of the Lord says, yes, it was me. And Manoah says, okay, cool. He says, now when your words come true, what will be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Manoah says three things here. First, he says, when your words come true. Do you see his faith here? Yes, you were telling me. But here, he, he takes the word of God at faith. When the things you promise happen, what should I do? And I like that. I like this about Manoah. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Manoah here, he receives the word of God by faith. He, he, he hears the promises of God and he just simply accepts it as true. Second thing Manoah does is he asks this question. He says, what will be the manner of his life? He's asking, in essence, how should my child live? How should I raise this child that you're placing in my life? As parents, I don't know if we ask those questions enough. Lord, how would you have us raise our kids? How would you have us set their schedules? How would you have us regulate their lives? Here's the reality. Education is great. Sports are great. Clubs and activities, they're great. But none of those things are gonna get my kids into heaven. None of those things are gonna save your kids. There's one thing that's gonna save our kids and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure that everything that we do is funneling them that direction, pointing them towards Jesus. Is that to say that we shouldn't educate our kids? Of course not. Is that to say that our kids shouldn't play sports? Of course not. Is that to say that our kids should only memorize the Bible from dawn till dusk? Maybe. No, that's not, that's not good. That's not what kids need. But we need to remember that our first concern that our first priority is to make sure that our plan for our kids is the same as the Lord's plan for our kids. My, my first concern shouldn't be making sure that my boys are really good at jujitsu or basketball or that they're really smart and get into Stanford. My first concern, my primary concern as a parent, it has to be Raising disciples of Jesus Christ. The third thing that Manoah says is this. What will his mission be? It's sort of tied to the second question, right? 
what is your plan for my child's life? I think a lot of times we try to plan out our kids' lives a little too much without asking what the Lord would have us do. And I think as parents, we need to pray over our kids' priorities. We need to pray over our kids' schedules. We need to set boundaries for our kids. And we need to be good examples for our kids. Remember back in verse four, when Samson is first called to be a Nazarite, what does the Lord tell his mom to do? Start living like a Nazarite as well. He says, your son is gonna be called to be a Nazarite. So you don't be unclean, don't drink, don't do these things. In essence, the Lord is saying, set an example for your kids to follow. Those of you guys who are parents, you understand this. Kids, especially young kids, they learn from observation, not from instruction, right? That's how it is with kids, right? They, they're, not, they're not learning so much from what we tell them as they are from what we do. At night, our family, we usually sit down before bed and we... We say our prayers. And when Eva was little and Hannah now, you know, when they're, when they're you know, maybe just, just first starting to talk, right? They see us praying. They see their older siblings pray. And what do they naturally want to do? They want to pray too. And at first it's, it's ridiculous things. The other day, Hannah was praying for Minnie Mouse, you know, and, <coughs> but they see us doing it and they want to emulate that. And, and I say that because this. You know, if we as parents, we're always telling our kids what to do. We're always telling our kids how to live. We're always telling our kids how to seek the Lord. And we're not doing it ourselves. Our kids are going to see right through that, aren't they? We need to set godly examples for our kids to follow. And finally, we need to dedicate our kids to the Lord. The reality is this. We can do everything right as parents. I mean, you probably won't, but hypothetically, you could do everything right as a parent. You could pray for each child two hours a day. You could read them Bible stories every single night. You could have them um, memorize portions of scripture. Never miss Sunday school. They get all the little stars on their attendance chart. And they still need the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They still need the Lord to work in their lives to save them. You know the expression, right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. We can do everything right. And sometimes our kids still go astray. And at that point, all we can do is dedicate them to the Lord and trust them to the Lord's care and pray that the Lord will continue to work in their lives. Verse 13. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, 
Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes to the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. So Manoah says to the angel, listen, why don't you stay for dinner? We're about to have a barbecue. We're about to, <clears throat> to grill up this little goat. Let's, let's, let's talk this through a little bit more. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, but if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus here, he says, well, if you insist, I'll stay. But I'm really not hungry. And I don't know exactly what's going on here. Maybe, maybe Manoah just really wasn't a good cook. Maybe the Lord just couldn't stomach his overcooked barbecue. I don't know. But Jesus says, listen, instead of barbecue, why don't you offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord? Right? There's a little indication of how he cooked, right? This, this is a burnt offering. I can't eat it. Let's just give it to God. But it's at this point, things <clears throat> begin to click a little bit for Manoah. He's not fully cognizant of who he's talking to yet. Maybe he thought it was just a prophet or a man of God. Or maybe he even recognized that it was an angel like his bride had earlier. But he didn't realize that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah says, as long as we're on the subject, as long as I'm inviting you over for dinner, what's your name? I mean, when your words come true, we need to know who to honor. And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Now, about half the translations say wonderful. But another half of the translation says something to the effect of, my name is beyond understanding. Or I, I think the King James says, my name is a secret. This word here, wonderful, or beyond understanding, or secret, it's only used twice in the Old Testament. It's the word philly. The other time it's used is in Psalm 139.6. It says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. He says it's too wonderful. It's beyond understanding. And that's the idea here. Manoah says to the Lord, who are you? <clears throat> and Jesus says, whoa, hold on, big guy. He says, I could tell you, but you wouldn't really understand. It's not that the Lord was unwilling to reveal himself. In fact, we'll see that he does. 
it seems like Manoah here, though, he's asking more than, you know, what's your name? How do I pronounce your name correctly? He's saying to the angel of God, who are you? And Jesus says, you know, it's really just too big of a question right now. It reminds me a little bit of John chapter 21. Remember what John says in John chapter 21? He says, now also, he says, now are there also many other things that Jesus did? Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John says, if everything about Jesus were written down, the world just isn't big enough to contain all the books. That's how big Jesus is. He says, that's how much there is to know about who Jesus is. He says, the world can't even contain the full knowledge of who he is. So Manoah, verse 19, took the young goat with a grain offering and offer it, offered it on the rock to the Lord, the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. It says, to the one who works wonders. Somebody say amen to that. We serve a wonder-working God. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we surely shall die for we have seen God. Now imagine the scene here in your mind. Manoah, he's just taken out this kid, this young goat, and he sacrifices it to the Lord. And what happens? Flames shoot up from the altar towards heaven. And what happens next? Jesus steps into the flames and... Like a transporter from Star Trek, right? He's just, he's just gone. And when that happens... Manoah and his wife, Mrs. Manoah, they fall on their faces. They're in shock. They realize who they were in the presence of. It says that Manoah then knew that it was the angel of the Lord. He realized that he had just had a personal encounter with the living God. And what does he say? He says, oh, we're going to die. For we have seen God. Manoah was probably familiar with Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, right? When the Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face and live. And Moses realized he'd just seen God. He's all right, I guess I know what's coming next. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. 
right? Manoah's wife, she seems like the, the reasonable one of the pair here. She says, look, babe, the Lord already accepted our burnt offering. If he was going to strike us dead, he probably would have done it already. If God was going to strike us dead, he probably wouldn't have promised us a son that was going to come and deliver Israel. In essence, what she's saying is this. God didn't start this work in our lives only to abandon us. It's been said that God's past work in our lives is a promise of his future care and blessing for us. I like that. God's past work in our life is a promise of his future care and blessing for us. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter one and verse six. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I think the New King James says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God's work in your past is evidence that he's gonna continue to work in your life. And when you don't feel like he's present, look back and remember what he's already done and view that as a promise of your future in him. So Manoah's wife, she says, look, I don't think we need to worry, honey. We're still alive. I don't think he's going to kill us. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtol. So Manoah and his wife, they have the son that Jesus promised them. They name him Samson. And just as a point of trivia, Samson in Hebrew, it means sunshine, little sunshine. Sort of a nickname for him, kind of cute. And as he grew up, the Lord began to stir in him. And the chapter ends here. And we're gonna see the Lord's work in his life and his shortcomings in the coming chapters. But for now, as we close, what lessons do we take home? What do we remember? First, God wants to be found by us. If we seek God, we will find him. Second, as parents, we need to seek God's wisdom in raising our kids. We need to not lean on our own understanding, but lean into the wisdom of God. Thirdly, we need to set good examples for our kids. Lead lives that are worthy of emulation. Right, remember what Paul says? He says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's our calling as parents, to set such a good example of disciples of Jesus Christ that as our kids emulate our lives, they'll naturally become followers of him. Lastly, fourthly, we need to pray for our kids and to entrust them to the Lord. 
understand that while we might do the best job that we can do, they're still their own person. They still have to make their own decisions. And we need to continue to pray for their souls. And when they drift away, continue to trust God that he began a work in their life and that he's gonna draw them back to himself as well. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage. In the midst of all the weirdness of Judges and all the other stuff that we've seen, we so appreciate just a, a normal chapter. Lord, and the great parenting advice. And we pray that you would help us to, to take these, these lessons and just remember them and to hide them in our hearts, Lord. And I especially pray for those of us who are parents or even grandparents and those who will become parents, Lord, or even those who have kids in our lives, that you would help us just to apply these principles and help each one of us to do our part to raise up a generation of, of godly young men and women. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.